Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the second hour of Loving Liberty. Phone lines are now open at 801-331-8113. So I learned something today. I, I have heard about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I've joked about it. Just because uh, sometimes my dog reacts as if it's, uh, in fact, the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding down our street whenever someone comes to the door. But, uh, you know, I never had really stopped to think about, well, what does each horseman represent? And if, if you're a biblical scholar, you probably knew all this. But I have to admit, not only was I lacking in understanding what each horse represented, but the order in which those four horsemen are unleashed. And when I learned this yesterday... I have to admit, it gave me a little bit of a hitch in my stomach, like, ooh. Suddenly, the four horsemen of the apocalypse seem a little more, how can I put this, plausible. So here's the quick rundown. First horseman of the apocalypse, the white horse. I know, if I listened to more Johnny Cash, I'd probably know all of this by heart. Uh, That's pestilence and plague. Well, we got nothing like that going on, especially in Africa and especially in China. Okay, I'm half joking, but at the same time, I'm like, wow. Okay, that's pretty intense. The second horse, the red horse, is war. And some say that specifically it is civil war. I don't know if that's just someone's interpretation, but again, a little shiver up my spine. Okay, that's kind of strange. Next comes the black horse. The black horse is famine, followed by the pale horse. And of course, the pale horse is death. So, you know, I'm not trying to give you something to worry about necessarily here. I'm just saying, how curious, (laughs) given some of the events, given the way some things are shaping up. um, Hmm. There's a certain plausibility to that whole four horsemen thing. Not sure I'm I'm real happy about that. Anyhow, 801-331-8113, 801-331-8113. Can I share some unpopular advice with you or at least some unpopular Uh, yet sound advice. This is courtesy of Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. You ready for this? Five ways to live below your means. Just in case those horsemen are warming up for a ride, this might come in handy. Annie Holmquist says it's uh, it's not often that one comes across sound, concise advice. So she says when she came across the following statement the other day, she took notice. The advice was live below your means. Now, this advice, writes Dr. Patrick Fagan, was given to a group of professional therapists, but she says it translates to families. Quote, what children need most from their parents is their time. Time given is attention given. In family life and in marriage, time is love. Deliberately living below your means affords time for family hour, for hours with the children, for walks with your spouse, for family gatherings. Live below your means is a strategic choice of monumental import that will enrich generations. Children need their parents' time more than their money. Time together results in affection, confidence, and a great outlook on life and will greatly influence whom they choose to be their spouse. Real wealth is time for what is most important. That quote right there reached out and grabbed me and it hasn't let go. And, and I'm, I'm sad to tell you, it took me a long time to realize the wisdom of this. I'd heard this before. I'd heard people talk about, you know, no success can compensate for failure in the home. And I believed it. 
but I don't think I really understood it until I started to see my kids grow up and leave the nest. And as I talk to them now, um, you know, there, we have had some interesting times. Like, like a lot of uh, families, we have seen times where things have been, uh, well, quite flush, and there have been times where things have been very lean. And during those times when I could provide for my kids, and I'm not, we've never had a really lavish, you know, jet-setter lifestyle, but there were times where, hey, if we wanted to take a trip to, to Disneyland, we didn't have to stop and think about, can we afford this? We could just do it. We knew that there was money in the bank. We knew that we had savings. We knew that we, we could meet our obligations comfortably and still make it happen. I'm grateful that our focus was more on experiences together as a family, including going camping for Thanksgiving, for instance, <laughs> because that's the stuff that seems to matter in the long run. So let, let me share a brief example of this. You know, the camping for Thanksgiving. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal if you live somewhere where it's warm and sunny all the time. Well, at the time that we went camping for Thanksgiving, let's see, this would have been in 2005. We lived in Cedar City, Utah. So about 5,000 feet in elevation, and it wasn't good enough. We didn't just go out in the backyard and camp. We actually headed to the nearby mountains, and, and we camped at a little place called Pinto Springs, which apparently later became somewhat famous with the cartel marijuana growers in, in later years. Apparently they liked the springs because it was a natural source of water. But uh, we went out there, set up our deluxe uh, outfitters tent from Cabela's and had a little uh, sheep herder stove that we put in there and, you know, a good supply of firewood. Or so we thought and thought, this is going to be great. We're going to cook our Thanksgiving dinner in Dutch ovens. We're going to just uh, rough it and see what it's like. Now, it was uh, it was cold. <laughs> I mean, it was like in the low 20s overnight. Cold enough that, uh, you know, you felt it. It, it was really. And, and I learned something that uh, no matter how much firewood you think you have, it ain't enough. It's nowhere near. So we had the stove going. Oh, look, it's glowing red and everything. Everybody was nice and cozy as we drifted off to sleep. And I woke up about two hours later and was just frozen. I mean, like shaking so hard, I could barely get another fire lit. I'll admit, I cheated. I used a little trioxane bar to to get things going. I wasn't going to do the whole Boy Scout. Well, first we start with some tinder and then a little uh, kindling to get that going. Nope, I just, uh, I got some reasonably sized pieces of wood and started a trioxane bar and just kept the thing going until we had a blazing fire going again. And then my wife and I traded off feeding logs into that thing about every hour to get us through the night. I spent all of the next day after Thanksgiving chopping firewood and specifically looking for some good oak firewood, something that would burn for a long time. It was a great learning experience. And and look here, I'm not trying to make it sound like, oh, how we suffered, but we did suffer. Everybody was cold. Even the dog, even the family dog was like burrowed down to the bottom of people's sleeping bags, you know, just trying to stay warm. And, you know, the, <laughs> my kids look back on that Thanksgiving and they still talk about it. They were young. I mean, this was 15 years ago. They were young, young, young. But they look back on that as one of the, the defining moments of, of our family and, and the adventures that we, we could do. And so when, when it, this article talks about time being a, a measure of wealth, I have to agree. Because there's times when I, did, I, I measured my wealth by, well, how much is in the bank? But the older I get, the more I realize uh, the, the only real wealth is your time and how you spend it. Because uh, it's unlike other forms of, of wealth or other stores of wealth, 
it's not replaceable. Annie Holmquist says, having grown up in a home where living below our means became a sudden necessity during an extended period of joblessness, she says, I have to agree. Doing without has a way of bringing a family together during an extended, you know, during a, a, a difficult time and reframing what's truly important in life. Now, thankfully, not every family will be forced into living on a restricted income. Yet many families desire a closer bond and they'd be happy if they could just set aside extra money for a rainy day, making living below one's means a reasonable and even a responsible move. So she has some suggestions here that ways family can work, families can work together, lower their means or their, live beneath their means rather, and, and still build meaningful connections with one another. Number one, she suggests make restaurants a treat. <sighs> restaurants are kind of a, a, a they're a cop out for us. If we're feeling lazy, well, let's go grab a pizza or something like that. But it used to be a treat. It's, that's, that's a good way to do it. Number two, pick one extra. She says, as a child, she enjoyed various short-term activities like day swimming or maybe a museum. But when it came to one regular activity, piano lessons were her thing, and that's what she stuck with for years, eventually using that knowledge to produce income for herself. Now, fear of missing out is what gets parents to enroll their kids in everything, multiple long-term activities, dance, soccer, band. Pick one extra. Save carpool time, reduce stress for children and parents. I think this is wise. Number three. Avoid movie theaters. Average cost of a movie ticket is over $9. Throw in a small treat, and the average movie night cost goes to over 40 bucks for a family of four. That doesn't mean you need to kiss movies goodbye, but uh, maybe wait for it to hit Netflix or the library in DVD format. Delayed gratification for a pittance of the price. Number four, volunteer. Living below one's means means that uh, can make you feel like you'll never get out in society again, so instead of forcing your family to be hermits because you can't afford anything, create a volunteer situation for a worthy cause to get you out of the house very good way to build camaraderie in your family as well finally she says make saving fun for instance her family enjoyed camping but during the lean years their old tent was breathing its last they really needed a new one the old tent was also a hideous shade of orange that was an embarrassment to her so they started a tent fund using money they earned together as a family to pay for it. Not only did they save enough for their tent, but they gained the memories that they'd made earning the money, a greater appreciation for the new tent, and the prospect of many family fun adventures ahead of them. Pretty good stuff, huh? It seems too simple to be true, but I'm, I'm going to tell you from personal experience, she is dead on. We'll be back. This is Loving Liberty. Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, 801-331-8113. All right, here is uh, kind of a civics lesson in disguise, a great article from Adam J. White, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. This was published in The Atlantic, and it's called A Republic If We Can Keep It. I don't know if you find yourself concerned about such things. I, I suspect at some level you must or you wouldn't listen to programs like this. Right. It's otherwise you'd be. You'd, I mean, come on. There's there's sports. There's there's all kinds of entertainment. There are things that can keep you distracted. There's cold beer in the fridge. Come on. But if you actually are concerned and maybe you're, you're looking for um, encouragement, maybe a bit of uh, light to, to help you continue to find your way. 
Well, that's that's what I'm here for. This article is a marvelous example of the battle for the Constitution as well as for our way of life here in America. And Adam White points out that the government set up by James Madison and the other founders requires a virtuous public and virtuous leaders without one or both. If it's missing any of those, it's it's going to fail. He starts out by saying in the days leading up to the Senate's impeachment trial, some people hoped that Chief Justice John Roberts presiding over the trial would use his position to send a strong message to the senators on what the Constitution requires of them. He had, in fact, already sent a message just weeks earlier on what the Constitution requires of all Americans. On December 31st, in a letter accompanying his annual report on the work of the federal courts, Roberts called on federal judges and everyone else to invest themselves in the preservation of constitutional democracy. He wrote, each generation has an obligation to pass on to the next, not only a fully functioning government responsive to the needs of the people, but the tools to understand and improve it. So for Roberts, this requires civics education and something more fundamental than that, too. And he illustrated his point with a founding era episode involving the nation's first chief justice, John Jay. After Jay committed to joining Alexander Hamilton and James Madison in writing essays in defense of the proposed Constitution, Jay was seriously wounded by a mob of New Yorkers who had been whipped into a frenzy by rumors of grave robberies. Jay's wounds derailed his involvement in our nation's greatest work of political philosophy, the Federalist Papers. It is sadly ironic, Roberts wrote, that John Jay's efforts to educate his fellow citizens about the framers' plan of government fell victim to a rock thrown by a rioter motivated by a rumor. Now, the connection between Jay's day and ours is clear. Roberts wrote, in our age, when social media can instantly spread rumor and false information on a grand scale, there's an even greater danger that political passions can turn us against one another or against constitutional government itself. He emphasized judges' particular role as a key source of national unity and stability. But his deeper point was that those values are needed among more than just judges. His letter invoked Jay, Hamilton, Madison, and John Marshall, but his ideas called to mind another founding father, Benjamin Franklin, who, on leaving the Constitutional Convention of 1787, supposedly told a curious passerby that the framers had produced a republic with the qualifier, if you can keep it. So what does it take to keep a republic? Well, nearly two and a half centuries into this experiment in self-governance, Americans tend to think that they keep their republic by relying on constitutional structure, separated powers, federalism, checks and balances. But constitutional structure, like any structure, does not maintain itself. Each generation has to maintain its institutions and repair any damage that its predecessors inflicted or allowed. And this task begins with civic education, so that Americans know how their government works, and thus what to expect from their constitutional institutions. Yet civic education alone, though necessary, is not sufficient. For civic education to take root and produce its desired fruit, the people themselves must have certain qualities of self-restraint, goodwill, and moderation. And because those virtues are necessary for the functioning of a constitutional republic, they're often called civic virtue or republican virtue. Now, this is not morality writ large, but something more limited and practical. As the late Irving Kristol argued in an essay 45 years ago, Republican virtue is fundamentally the virtue of public spiritedness as the Founding Fathers knew it. 
It means curbing one's passions and moderating one's opinions in order to achieve a large consensus that will ensure domestic tranquility. We think of public spiritedness as a form of self-expression, an exercise in self-righteousness. Well, the founders thought of it as a form of self-control, an exercise in self-government. Now, Crystal further described this term, this in terms of probity, truthfulness, self-reliance, diligence, prudence, and a disinterested concern for the welfare of the republic. A co-founder of the policy journal, The Public Interest, he understood that in a republic, there is such a thing as the public interest apart from and perhaps at odds with one's own personal interests. And thus it requires citizens to restrain themselves in the slow, deliberative workings of constitutional and civic institutions, even in their institutions with one another, as Roberts emphasized in his letter. Well, as it happens, Roberts is not the only justice returning to these themes. Just last autumn, Justice Neil Gorish published A Republic If You Can Keep It, a collection of essays, speeches, and judicial opinions in which he elaborates on his sense of the Supreme Court's proper place in constitutional government and in the country more generally. Now, many of the book's themes, originalism, textualism, and the structural constitution will be familiar to lawyers and the broader public, but Gorish, like Roberts, goes beyond the familiar structural arguments and calls for civic education and civility, reminding Americans that the constitution structure is not self-preserving. For Gorish, civic virtue requires civility. And his book highlights the example of his own court, the justices are able to argue and disagree so vigorously in their judicial opinions only because they work so hard to foster a spirit of community with one another. We eat lunch together regularly and share experiences and laughs along the way, he wrote. And wherever we, and whenever we gather for work, no matter how stressful the moment, every justice shakes the hand of every other justice. Now, the spirit of community among the nine justices is not so easy for the country as a whole to replicate. Gorish warned, my worry is that in our country today, we sometimes overlook the importance of these kinds of bonds and traditions and of the appreciation for civility and the civics they install or instill rather in a time when many people are actually calling for an end to civility. When people believe that more anger is needed because the stakes are too high and the ends justify the means. Gorish urged that for a government of and by the people to work the people themselves need to talk to one another respectfully, debate and compromise, and strive to live together tolerantly. While the essential goodness of the American people is a profound reservoir of strength, it cannot be taken for granted. It needs constant mending. In an era of fractured politics, the blessings of freedom come with the duty of having to listen to and tolerate other points of view, because democracy depends on our willingness, each one of us, to hear and respect even those with whom we disagree. Now, I'm going to pause here for just a moment and just ask you, do you find your, your blood pressure uh, rising just a little bit? Just curious. I'm not trying to put you on the spot or, you know, make you feel guilty. But for some people, that's like, we we can't do that. And I know a lot of really good people who definitely uh, subscribe to that idea that, no, 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 what we need now is more righteous indignation, more anger. Because that's what's going to carry the day. I don't know. Did you catch David Brooks or uh, Arthur Brooks? Sorry. Arthur Brooks' remarks at the uh, prayer breakfast last week. 
he talked about how incivility, in particular contempt, the idea that there's some people who just, they're not even worth talking to. That is what is poisoning our, our public our public's ability to to communicate with one another. That is what is dividing us, um, not just along political lines, but but just generally from one another. We're going to take a quick break. We're gonna, when we come back, I'm going to open up the phone lines, 801-331-8113. Brooks had some very specific suggestions as to ways that you and I can help promote civility. I'm going to share those with you, and I'm going to warn you right now, they're not easy. They're definitely doable. You also you might find interesting uh, President Trump's response to Arthur Brooks' remarks. It makes this a very timely topic. We'll be back right after these messages. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. All right, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. Before I jump to the phone here, I want to share this quote uh, from Dr. Arthur Brooks, who was the keynote speaker of the National Prayer Breakfast last week. And he zeroed in on the corrosive dynamic that is swiftly carrying our society to a very, very dark place. And he said, the problem is what psychologists call contempt. In the words of 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. In politics today, we treat each other as worthless, which is why our fights are so bitter and cooperation feels nearly impossible. Now, Brooks didn't just identify the root cause of all the incivility that you see around us today. He suggested three ways to break the habit of contempt. And not surprisingly, these start with ourselves. He said, first, ask God to remove contempt for others from our hearts and to genuinely learn to love our enemies. Now, look, if you believe in God, that's one of the commandments. Probably one of the harder ones, but that is nonetheless something that uh, that the Almighty asks of those who would follow him. Next, Brooks suggested that we commit to another person to reject contempt and allow them to hold us accountable. Someone to remind us when we are stepping over the line. Finally, he suggested that we go out looking for contempt so that we have the opportunity to answer it with love. So how hard, how hard do you suppose that is to put into practice? Well, if last week's prayer breakfast was any indication, uh, right after Brooks made those remarks, the most powerful man in the free world stood up and immediately rejected them as impractical. Talk about a missed opportunity. All right, let's go to the phone. My friend Rathbite is on the line with me. Hello there. Hello. Uh, I, I still want to tell you the origin of my name, but I yet will do it on a different show because I have other things that are more important today. This, this is good. This is a, this is a cliffhanger, and it will keep not only me, but it will keep other listeners coming back because they want to know the mystery behind the man. Well, there there is a there is a, a logic to it. It started off as as mind cleaner, and then it evolved into Rathbite, and uh, and and I'll, I'm going I'm going to I will talk about that at another show. So because um, there, there is a really great history behind it, actually, and. So I, I want to do a little house cleaning before I go into the main topic of the show, and that is of yesterday between you and a caller, an, uh, seemed like an elder caller, perhaps a Vietnam veteran. Um, I, I became 
more enlightened. If I was even enlightened at all, I became more enlightened and aware of our discussion regarding socialism versus capitalism. Uh, the the caller, um, the gentleman caller, said that uh, he he corrected me and said that uh, Vietnam was not socialist; it was actually communist, which fascinated me um, because I realized, wow, it, it is a communist country and. They have a great deal of capitalism going on there right now. So even capitalism thrives within a com communist country. Uh, and then uh, um, I also want to say to you that the caller, uh, when I talked about Wi-Fi as the example of that, I thought, you know, I, Estonia had free Wi-Fi for everybody. And we kind of debated about it, about, you know, well, some people might not want Wi-Fi and have to pay for it. And it wasn't really free Wi-Fi. It's just it's 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 supported by all of the country, uh, and he called up and said that he doesn't want it because it, it's bad for his health. And I have a confession to make. I also don't want Wi-Fi. I don't have it in my house. I can turn it on, but I keep it turned off for the same reasons for health. So I was kind of being a little bit dishonest. I was like saying, well, who wouldn't want it, in order to provoke the argument because I wanted to induce the argument on your side so we could have the debate. But in all honesty, I too don't want the Wi-Fi. And my enlightenment came at that point when I realized. Hey, I do believe that everybody should be given access to the Internet without uh, – uh, uh, I think it should be socialized, uh, Internet access for everybody, but only on cable, so, so you don't get the radio waves. And, and, it should, and if you don't want it, then you don't have to pay the tax for it if you don't want to use it. So that, that makes it voluntary, but it should be completely inexpensive, made nonprofit. That's what I believe. I'm just saying that's what I believe, that because it's common to everybody – it should be socialized, but not if it's intrusive, like Wi-Fi is intrusive, because I turn on my Wi-Fi detector, and I have 27 Wi-Fi routers radiating me right now, and I'm on a half an acre lot. And I still have all of these modems around me in, in, uh, in, invasively in my space with their radio waves, and I think, you know, they really shouldn't be able to do that to me unless they want to give me free Wi-Fi on their router. But, you know, that's just where I am coming from. And so I want to thank you and the caller for – and I learned a lot more, which I'll discuss with you at another time. Okay, fair uh, enough. But I did become a little more aware of socialism, capitalism, and how I'm evolving this theme that ultimately they're kind of intertwined. Like you don't really have a pure socialist country. You don't have a pure capitalist country. You don't have a pure communist country. There's an intertwining of all of these, these, uh, these political – uh, or whatever you want to call them, these 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 concepts, they're all intertwined within just about every every country. And so this is why I kept saying to you that instead of arguing the the, the two sides as, as if they're extremes, one's evil and one's good, there's some sort of a middle ground there that needs to be evolved so that we can discuss the evolution of the intertwining of these things. Fair enough. And and how dare you bring nuance into a discussion? Things are supposed to be black and white, darn it. Okay, no. So, so tell me what else was on your mind. Okay, the other thing is what you're talking about. Uh, I, and it kind of goes back to the origin of my name, Mind Cleaner, is that, you know, we, we, we knew, I learned way back when, that, uh, that the, 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 there, was a, there was a conspiracy to destroy the sovereignty of the nations of the world. And I believed in this. And so I... I, I set up upon myself the, the duty and the burden of constantly talking about it and, and teaching people about the, the necessity of us to do no harm. Because as soon as we start committing fraud and deceit and physical harm and all this cheating and lying and all of these things, 
we are literally not only destroying the victim of our maniacal machinations, but we are also destroying the sovereignty of the country because the sovereignty of the country is entirely dependent upon our morality and our ethics. And so I then learned that the courts were unethical, that they were operating uh, in, a, in a deceitful manner, in, in, like in the civil courts. There was a lot of uh, fraud upon the court and a lot of deception, and it was this, this, that this private club had taken over the legal system, and they are now like in charge of, of, of justice. Even though they call it a justice system, it it's really was based on, on uh, a manipulation of procedures. And I, and I learned this by doing a lot of paralegal work, and I learned this by talking to attorneys who informed me that it's not about justice. And I said, no, it is. The laws are written about justice. And I realized it doesn't actually behave that it's about justice, even though the laws are written about justice. And I got in this debate with these attorneys about it, saying, look, you guys are doing this the wrong way. You're manipulating it because there's no authority to stop you, and, and, and the case should be purely based on evidence and fact, not procedure and form. You're turning it into a game of procedure and form, and you're supposed to be the highest uh, – like, like I, I talked to one – you're supposed to be the highest ethic. You're the higher standard. Uh, sure, every society has a certain degree of corruption in it, but when we go to the courts, we're not supposed to have that. That's the higher standard. That's where the corruption stops. And now when we have corruption in the courts, which we've seen, and we can see it over and over again, it's like, whoa, the whole country is sinking now. We've got a breach in the hull of the USS or the USA ship, you know, and, and we're leaking. And so now the people aren't trained in this manner. They're not trained in law. They're not trained in, in ethics and civics. So when they go about their daily business, a lot of them are, like, manipulating based on what they want and what they feel, what they think. You know all this kind of stuff, and 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 they're doing lots of harm to each other. And they're not. Instead, they should be like, well, if I do that, I'll be breaching the the rights of another person, which is effectively be, breaching my rights. And then what happens is the victim, the victimizer, hurts the victim, and the victim doesn't get justice because of how complicated it is. So they can they go on resenting, and then they get if they continue to resent, they begin to decline spiritually and morally. Uh, and physically, if they hang on to that, and then the victimizer, he gets to get away with it, which destroys him spiritually, because when he dies, he has to go to the spirit realm and face what he's done, and he has to then suffer through that. And so by letting a victimizer get away with things, you're actually declining his own spirituality. And the whole thing just falls apart. The country, the people, the mind, the heart, the soul, the spirit, everything just goes to hell. I don't really believe in hell, but you know what I mean. It just goes, it deteriorates. Actually, this makes a whole lot of sense. Should I be concerned? Because, I mean, what you've been saying here makes, makes great sense to me. Well, that's, that's what happened, is that I realized that when, when I went through this process of, of learning these things and, and trying to you know, talk about it, I saw how everybody was just wanting to be in their entertainment. And I realized, well, oh, my God, the whole country is... We're all turning into adolescents, adults, and we're just like entertainment and pleasure and, and amusement. The word amusement comes from the muse, the Greek muse, to not think. It's like it's turning into a not think park. An amusement park is a not think park. So now we're like, we're, it's not that we're dumb I and mean, we're smart. We do, we do very smart things. 
but it's it's what we it's what our intention is. Like we're okay. smart enough to program a bunch of ridiculous. I, I got to stop you here because we are up against the clock. Thank you for your contribution, and I look forward to hearing from you again. I've got to take a break. We'll pay some bills. We'll finish up here with this article in just a few moments. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I want to jump back here to this article. This is from The Atlantic about a republic if we can keep it. And I understand. For some people, it's like, yeah, whatever. As long as I got fantasy football, I'm happy. Maybe. I don't know what it takes. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in my next conversation with Rathbite just because um, it sounds like he's dialed in. He, he, he's paying attention. And, and I think all of us have the potential to reach something that kind of flips our switch, brings us to an awareness that, hey, this is more than just a curiosity or more than a hobby, but actually something that, uh, that becomes a part of who I am. And, you know, to, not to put too fine a point on it, but um, this is what I live and breathe. I want to talk about this stuff because I believe this is among the most important stuff that we can and should be doing, not just politically. You understand. It's just I, I, I think that we have been given a tremendous gift. I believe it's a God-given gift of uh, free will and the ability to make choices that, that enable us to, to become the best version of ourselves possible. And it's filled with risk. You know, there's the risk of failure. There is also the the possibility of success. You can't have one without the other. And what we see happening politically, in my opinion, is just it's an extension of an age old struggle between light and darkness, between coercion versus free will that has been going on since uh, long before this earth ever existed. But I love that previous generations had insights that I think sometimes we take for granted. We reject because, well, show me the show me whatever computers they had back in the days of the founding. Well, they didn't. But I think it would be hard to argue that character wise, they weren't living at a higher level of personal character than, than we are right now. And I appreciated, uh, I think it was, I think something Rathbite referred to was, you know, the idea that, you know, it's all about being entertained. It's all about pleasure. It's all about food, you know, Epicurean, hedonistic, you know, sensations. This is all what, what life is about. Well, if you want to use your freedom, if you want to use it in the wisest possible way, then there's going to be some responsibility that comes with it. That's the not so fun part. Unfortunately, we're reaching a point where talking about this kind of stuff is extremely divisive. Going back here to the article again, this is written by Adam White, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He says uh, there are themes that these themes that we're talking about here are themes that the Constitution's framers knew well. Madison, for example, understood how much of his constitutional vision depended on what he called Republican virtue. And he wrote about it. But those writings have been overshadowed by his more famous quotes on the need for constitutional structure to guard against mankind's vices, like in Federalist 51, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Well, for people who aren't angels, Republican government relies on constitutional checks and balances which redirect vices, certain vices, toward the public benefit. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. Madison argued, and liberty is safer when one ambitious branch of government counteracts another. 
But to say that constitutional government does not need people to be angels is not to say that constitutional government requires no virtue at all. In fact, Madison himself warned against assuming otherwise. In Federalist Number 55, facing critics' predictions of corruption in Congress, he observed that while there is a degree of depravity in mankind which requires a certain degree of circumspection and distrust, there are also other qualities in human nature which justify a certain portion of esteem and confidence. But then, setting optimism aside, he warned, Republican government presupposes the existence of these qualities in a higher degree than any other form. Were the pictures which have been drawn by the political jealousy of some among us faithful likenesses of the human character, the inference would be that there is not sufficient virtue among men for self-government, and that nothing less than the chains of despotism can restrain them from destroying and devouring one another. Does that not describe the mindset of of those who are clamoring for so-called common-sense gun control? We have to do this to prevent people from destroying each other. Well, but what about the 99.9% of the people who, who own guns who aren't destroying each other? Why do we punish them? Why do we want to render them helpless? Back to the article. Madison knew that the Constitution could not be sustained if the country did not first sustain certain virtues of self-restraint among those who administer the government and among those who choose them. Do you get that second part? This is where I may actually land on a few people's toes. I'm willing to take this chance. Whatever you see in political figures or personalities, you know, playing out before us, whether it's, uh, you know, heroic leadership or whether it's, you know, the, the petty spat and purse swinging that we saw last week around the State of the Union address, the best and the worst that you see are reflections of what the voters are willing to tolerate. Now, I'm going to ask you to consider, how far do you trust politicians? In how high esteem do you think they're generally held? I don't know what the latest Gallup poll says. I know that occasionally they do polls about, you know, who, who are the most trustworthy individuals, you know, in your life? Uh, you know, pastors, pharmacists, used car salesmen. Politicians rank very low at the very bottom most of the time. But that's a reflection on us. At some point, we have to ask ourselves, well, how did they get into power in the first place? And if the answer is, well, they convinced enough people to vote for them, how did they convince people to vote for them if they're really that untrustworthy? You see what I'm getting at, right? There's some responsibility that comes to us. It's on us to elect good, honest, and wise individuals to act as representatives, to act as servants. But we're not so good about that anymore. We tend to fall for whoever's promising us the most, whether it be goodies, whether it be security, whether it be the ability to punish those who tick us off. And sadly, I think that's probably one of the dominant themes in this year's general election. This is all about payback. This is all about uh, we're going to rub your noses in it, good and hard. How could that not bring greater incivility, and more trouble. 
As the article here says, such themes resonate throughout the Federalist Papers, often explicitly, but often implicitly in Hamilton and Madison's discussions of constitutional structure. Madison's description of Congress is a good example of the latter. The framers divided the legislative branch into two houses, requiring deliberative processes within each house to pass a bill in each, and then a deliberative process between the two houses to settle on a bill that both could pass. And finally, a deliberative process for the president to sign their bill or for congressional supermajorities to overcome his veto. This process is possible only if the participants are capable of deliberation, persuasion, compromise, and consensus. It requires a patient willingness to abide by procedures and rules, even when they do not deliver one's own preferred outcome in a given legislative fight, lest the legislative process devolve into total war with political factions destroying and devouring one another. Other branches of government designed differently for different types of action require virtues of their own. And on these points, Hamilton and Madison made the arguments for Republican virtue much more explicit. Take, for example, the seminal discussion of judicial power in Federalist Number 78. Hamilton argued that judicial independence is necessary because constitutional government requires judges of a particular temperament, judges whose deep learning in the law makes them willing to be bound down, or more accurately, to bind themselves down by strict rules and precedents. It requires judicial self-restraint. And even in recognizing that judges sometimes will need to declare statutes unconstitutional, Hamilton urged that they should exercise this power with restraint and moderation, nullifying statutes only when there is an irreconcilable variance between the statute and the Constitution. That is, to first try and reconcile the variance to find a fair construction that lets both the statute and the Constitution stand. Hamilton's Hamilton's judges are moderate and self-restrained, striking down statutes as a last resort, not a first one. Hamilton's view of judicial self-restraint echoes Madison's own explanation that written law's inherent vagueness will often require time for legal meaning to be liquidated and ascertained through a series of particular discussions and adjudications, a process that's nearly impossible if all legal ambiguity has to be resolved immediately by the first judges to hear every legal question. Now, the article goes on to talk about presidential power as well. Um, We won't have time to get to that. But the bottom line is, Recognizing that the public will always be impassioned by politics, Madison observed in Federalist 49 that the process and structure of our federal government will help to transform the public's passions into a less impassioned public reason. So the public's reason alone would control and regulate the government, while the government would control the people's passions. But this approach presumes that an impassioned public is willing to be controlled. If the public persists in its impassioned state, it will eventually have the opportunity to overcome whatever limits the government tries to put on the impassioned majority. Only with the virtues of self-restraint urged by Madison and Hamilton at their time and Irving Kristol four decades ago and Roberts and Gorish today can the country avoid the the national self-immolation that the Founding Fathers feared. I'll have this posted in the show notes when I put this up for podcast in just a little bit. You can find it at LovingLiberty.net. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 